Our scripture reading for the day comes from the Old Testament book of Genesis, chapter 37, verses 12 through 28. Now Joseph's brothers went to pasture. Their father, uh, excuse me. Now, now Joseph's brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock of Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. He answered, Here I am. So he said to them, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the, uh, sent him from the valley of Hebron. He came to Shechem, and a man found him wandering in the fields. The man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. The man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from a distance, and before he came near to them, they conspired to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we shall say that a wild animal has devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he delivered him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but lay no hand on him, that he, might, uh, that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to their father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the long robe with sleeves that he wore, and took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, with their camels carrying gum, balm, and resin on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers agreed. When some Midianite traders passed by, they drew Joseph up, lifting him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty pieces of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, in these divisive times, help us to bring grace. Lord, give us wisdom to lead our households and our community in ways that will build your kingdom. Lord, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Well, I can't quite call Reuben a hero. I mean, after all, he allowed his brother to be sold into slavery. What a horrible thing. Uh, there's no getting around that. Yet Reuben did show some leadership in today's story that, uh, that saved Joseph's life, and it profoundly affected the entire history of Israel and of the Judeo-Christian faith. But, but how did it all get started anyway? Let's, let's kind of step back and, and get into the story. Uh, Joseph's older brothers hated him. They, they just despised him. Uh, he was, uh, Joseph was his daddy's favorite son. Uh, Israel favored Joseph above all the others, and he made no secret of it. He, he gave Joseph that famous coat of many colors uh, and that he must have really rubbed in his brothers, uh, rubbed in on his brothers a lot. Uh, Joseph uh, also kept having these dreams about his older brothers bowing down to him. Now, I'm a little brother. I know that kind of talk does not go over well with big brothers. 
They had to have been angry about him and his dreams. In fact, they said as much. Plus, we also find out that Joseph had been snitching on his brothers to his dad, telling them when they did something wrong. And we all know what happens to snitches. And so the older brothers had developed a real strong hatred for uh, their little brother. Uh, this story gives them a chance to do something about it. They're away from home, pasturing the flock all the way down near Dothan. And uh, when they're down there, they look up and see Joseph coming from a distance. And when they see him, they say, this is our opportunity. We can solve the little brother problem once and for all. We'll, we'll just kill him. We'll tell our dad that an animal did it. And then we'll see what happens to all of his dreams about us bowing down to him. Well, Reuben steps in. Reuben steps in and saves Joseph. He says, no, let's don't kill him. Uh, let's don't shed any blood. Let's just throw him in the pit. And sure enough, the brothers agree. And, and they go on and have their meal. And uh, then while they're eating, this Ishmaelite caravan comes by. And Judah, uh, not the oldest, Reuben is the oldest, but Judah, one of the other brothers, speaks up and says, I'll tell you what, let's don't kill him. Let's sell him and get a little bit of money out of him. And the brothers agree. So they sell him to the Ishmaelite caravan heading down to Egypt. Now, real quick aside, uh, just an interesting twist in the Bible plot. Uh, the Ishmaelites are descendants of Ishmael, the son that Abraham and Sarah had, or Abraham and Hagar had, when Abraham and Sarah were a little too impatient to wait on God to give Sarah a child. But anyway, the Ishmaelites load up, uh, load up Joseph and take him on down to Egypt. Well, think about this. Reuben has saved Joseph's life only for him to be delivered into slavery in Egypt. Like I said, Reuben, Reuben is not quite a hero, but he plays an important part because once Joseph is in Egypt, he becomes governor of Egypt, uh, second powerful in the whole land. Later, during a famine, Israel and the family has to come down to Egypt seeking for food. And who is it that saves their lives? But Joseph. The very one that the brothers had conspired against saves the whole family. And so Joseph saves the family. Uh, while in Egypt, Israel becomes a great nation. And then, of course, we know the story of the Exodus as they leave Egypt heading for the Promised Land. All of that part of our story only happens if the brothers don't kill Joseph. And the brothers didn't kill Joseph because Reuben spoke up. Reuben did something. He calmed the situation enough to at least spare Joseph's life. Leaders have a lot to learn from him. Again, making no excuses for the fact that he sold his brother. There's, that's still a hard pill to swallow. But Reuben does show some leadership that I think is valuable for any of us that would be mature leaders. Uh, mature leaders in our time know how to control the thermostats. Now, I'm not talking about the one on the wall over here, but I'm talking about uh, mature leaders know how to change the temperature in a group of people. Uh, sometimes we get really heated, and a good leader needs to turn things down a little bit. Sometimes we get apathetic, and a good leader needs to light a fire in us. You see, leaders can't always fix the problem. They can't always change the entire situation. But if we could affect it by a degree or two, Maybe we could save a life. Maybe we could make a difference. That's what Reuben did. Reuben couldn't solve the problem that his family had. Reuben didn't have the power to make all the brothers love Joseph. 
Uh, Reuben didn't have the ability to make the household be peaceful. It just wasn't, and it wasn't going to be. But Reuben did have the ability to turn the temperature down just a couple of degrees, somewhere from murderous rage down to let's just sell him into slavery. And it made a difference. Jesus exercised that same kind of leadership throughout his life. There were times when things were about to get out of hand. You may remember the time when James and John uh, said, hey, we're ready to call fire down from heaven to destroy these disobedient cities. Jesus, let us burn them up, James and John said. And uh, Jesus turned down the temperature, temperature of some and said, no, my, my mission's not about burning up cities. Let's let them live. Another time, the crowd was ready to uh, was ready to stone to death a woman who had been caught in adultery. They were they were standing stones in hand, ready to murder her. In that situation, Jesus turned down the temperature. The one of you without sin cast the first stone, and he saved the woman's life, and he set her free. So Jesus was masterful at bringing the temperature down when things were about to get out of hand. But he also knew how to heat it up. He, he walked into the temple one day and he found the money changers there in the outer court, uh, buying and selling sacrificial animals and exchanging Roman money for temple money. Really what they were doing, two things were really wrong with it. One, they were ripping people off. The religious leaders were stealing from the worshipers and that angered Jesus. Also, they were doing this in the court of the Gentiles. This was the only place in the temple area where non-Jewish believers in God could come and worship. And so they were depriving people of their worship space. That also angered Jesus. And uh, he couldn't just sit on them. So in, in a religious culture that had, been, had become apathetic to that kind of injustice, Jesus turned up the temperature a lot. Things got real heated that afternoon as he overturned the tables and set the animals free and cleared out the house to restore it to a place of worship. So Jesus had an incredible ability to either heat things up or cool them down. More importantly, he had the wisdom to know which to do at which time. Sometimes I'm afraid I get it backwards. When things are already really hot, I tend to want to heat them up more or vice versa. But Jesus had the wisdom to know when to do that. Here's the good news. The same Holy Spirit that enabled Jesus to lead that way fills us. The same Holy Spirit enables and empowers us to have that kind of leadership. Uh, and don't we need it in these times? Man, every time I turn on the TV, it seems somebody's mad at somebody else. Uh, our, our culture is angry right now. It's a good time for the church to show mature leadership. But what will our guiding principles be? Well, you'll have to decide that for yourself. But my guiding principles for when, for how to operate the thermostat, for when to heat it up or cool it down, there are really two things that guide me. One is the imago dei. That's the Latin for image of God. The other is the open table. Let me say just a word about each. First, the imago dei reminds us that we are all created in the image of God. That's what Genesis tells us. Uh, that uh, God himself speaks in Genesis chapter 1 and says that we are all created in God's image. It doesn't matter our ethnicity or our nationality or our immigration status or our orientation or our religion even. Regardless of any of those factors, all of us in humanity bear the image of God. Now, if that's true, then everyone who bears the image of God deserves love, respect, 
decency, care. Jesus said as much in Matthew 25 when he said, that Whatever you do to one of the least of these, you've done unto me. So however we treat, however we treat the people that even we dislike, that's how we're treating Jesus. And so one of my guiding principles is the Imago Dei, to, to try to remember, and I struggle sometimes, but to try to remember that every individual is created in the image of our God and deserves to be treated as such. The second is the open table. Uh, my belief that, that everyone should find a seat at the table, that no one should ever be blocked from access to God, that we should make sure that this is always an open place for anyone to come. As Methodist Christians, can't we agree on those two things? People are created in the image of God and they, they ought to have access to Christ's table. I hope so. That's, that's what I'm trying to live into. And with that in mind, I'm trying to learn how to lead. And I'll be honest with you, I struggle. I get it wrong too many times. I am not offering you a roadmap to perfection because I haven't figured it out yet. But here's what I want to do. Here's the kind of leader I want to be. Based on the Imago Dei and the open table, when I see discrimination in action, I want to be one of those leaders that turns the temperature up a degree or two because there's no room to treat one another with discrimination if we're all created in God's image. When I see someone that is blocked away from Christ's table, then we got to do something. I want to turn the temperature up a little bit. When I, see, when I see voter rights being suppressed so that people don't have their own voice in our leadership, I want to turn the heat up. When I see children that are neglected or abused or don't have the opportunity to get the education they need to get ahead in this world, I want to turn the temperature up some. Whenever we become apathetic about injustice, I want to raise that temperature a little bit. We don't have to burn the house down. But we need to be able to raise the temperature enough to motivate people to action. Because justice delayed is justice denied. On the other hand, sometimes we need to cool things down. I've witnessed over the last few weeks human beings created in the image of God saying hateful things to one another over their school choices for this fall. Anybody with children, anybody in the education field, and a lot of the rest of us have felt that, haven't we? What a trying time to, to try to figure out the right thing to do for your family with the educational opportunities that are ahead of us this fall. Too often I've heard some people demonize the other side. Whether you believe in in-person, uh, whether you believe everybody ought to be on campus, or whether you believe everybody ought to be off campus, some of us tend to demonize the other side, saying mean things towards them. Well, they don't, just don't love their kids, or they don't care about education, and none of that's true. But we tend to pick our side and sometimes demonize the other side, don't we? And the whole school discussion in our time, isn't it a good time to dial the thermostat back two or three or maybe ten degrees? Because deep down, I really believe everybody's trying to do the best they can. There's not a perfect solution. and Everybody is really working to do the best they can for their family. Can't we as Christians bring grace to that instead of judgment? Now, we won't solve any of these problems on our own. Uh, Reuben couldn't bring peace to the family, and we're not going to bring peace to all of these situations. But with God's help, maybe we, can, maybe we can bring some leadership anyway. Maybe we can bring grace. 
in those places where uh, I, I just encourage you, in fact, I'd encourage you to monitor your conversations this week, whether it's on the phone or whether it's through your emails, uh, whether it's with your social media, especially social media. Kind of monitor those conversations. And when we see apathy towards injustice, let's turn the degree up, turn the thermostat up a degree or two. When we see division and hatred, let's be the kind of leaders with God's help that'll turn the temperature down a little. Just like Reuben, we're going to make our mistakes, and it won't be a perfect story. We probably won't be perfect heroes either. But with God's help, we can offer leadership that will make a difference in our time. Amen. Now, perhaps during the service today, uh, we've said something that, that touched your heart, and you want to have uh, more of a conversation about it. Uh, whether you're one of our church members or somebody that views anywhere else in the world, we want to make an invitation for you to connect with us either through our missions, our, uh, again, through our, our studies this fall, or maybe in response to this sermon. If you'd like to connect with Forest Lake in any way at all, uh, my email address is on the screen now. I invite you to please email me, and let's continue the conversation about how we can be in relationship together with Forest Lake. Amen.